2: Hello, and welcome to Policy Forum Pod. It's the podcast for those who want to dig a little bit deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearson. and it's been a while since I've been in the podcast chair but uh, I'm excited to be back particularly with what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School. We are the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about Crawford at crawford.anu.edu.au and with me today co-hosting is Sue Regan. Hello Sue, how are you? Hi Martin, I'm doing well thanks. What have you been up to recently?
1: Oh, well, I'm in that final stage of writing my PhD thesis. So um, I've been busy at that. It flatlined for a while, but I'm, I'm back into it now and it's going
2: well. The last leg. So how many words are you up to on the thesis?
1: Oh, I've, I've kind of got too many words, which is part of the problem. I'm kind of, yeah.
2: We have a competition here at ANU called the three-minute thesis, but uh, three minutes is a bit too long. Can you summarise your thesis for us in 15 seconds?
1: Uh, my thesis is about how evidence gets used in public inquiries.
2: Wow, that wasn't even close to 15 seconds. I love it. Very efficient. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that should be a key part of policy making, but instead it's too often overlooked by decision makers, and that is talking to the people who will actually be affected by the policy. And we've got with us today an expert on community engagement who will hopefully help us understand how communities can lead change in their own right and how policymakers can build partnerships and foster strong citizen leadership and at the end of the day, deliver good policy.
1: That's right, Martin. Our guest today is Paul Schmitz. Paul is the Senior Advisor at the Collective Impact Forum and he's the first innovation fellow in residence at Georgetown University's Beak Centre for Social Innovation and Impact. He's recognised as one of America's most influential nonprofit leaders. He writes and speaks frequently on social innovation, civic participation, diversity and community building, and has served on President Obama's transition team and the White House Council on Community Solutions.
2: Yeah, so he's a great person to talk to about community engagement. I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has got to say. But before we get to that, A reminder that we are really keen to get your thoughts on this or any of our podcasts. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum on Twitter, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or go old school and drop us a line on email where we are, podcast at policyforum.net. We really look forward to hearing everyone's thoughts. But for now, let's meet our guest, Paul Schmitz. Many thanks for joining Policy Forum Pod.
0: Great to be with you.
2: I'm keen to dive into community engagement, but I have to ask first, as Sue mentioned in your bio, you were a social innovation advisor to the Obama White House. What did that role involve, and what was it like working for Obama?
0: Yeah, so it goes back further than that. I actually began uh, in the 90s. uh, I helped build an organization called Public Allies, and actually one of the other co-founders of the organization was Michelle Obama, and Michelle and I worked together back then and cut our teeth on community engagement and leadership development together. We were both faculty members of the Asset-Based Community Development Institute, and we were both leaders at public allies at the time. And so we go back to that time, and I knew them for a long time. And so when he decided to run, uh, I was invited to get involved, and I was both on his National Finance Committee, and I also chaired uh, the Civic Engagement Policy Group and also served on the Urban Policy Group. And when he was elected, was on the transition team to help set up a lot of our focus was on creating this office of social innovation and civic engagement and actually creating a bill to fund social innovation and civic engagement. And so during the transition and the early part of the administration helped set up that office and helped pass a bill, uh, the, the uh, Ted Kennedy Service Serve America Act and others. And so uh was deeply involved in a lot of that work and worked with that office. I chose not to move to Washington and work there, um, but worked uh, actively with the White House. And eventually, was part of something called the White House Council for Community Solutions, which was part of the Domestic Policy Council. And our job was to find how communities were solving problems and help figure out how to kind of grow practices that actually solve long-term kind of wicked and tractable
2: problems. It sounds like the White House was fairly well advanced in their thinking with this, but you're on the outside now. What's your take on the Trump administration's approach to community engagement? Have they kept up the same levels?
0: No. Um, It's very different. Um, I was asked earlier about working with federal agencies on these things. And, you know, one of the truths right now is that there are a lot of positions that have never been filled. There's hundreds of roles and uh, leadership roles in the federal government that have never been filled. They can't get people. And the result of that is that the civil servants are still driving a lot of the agenda, which has been a good thing. But it means there's a lot of kind of status quo and people kind of just getting work done and hoping they can get as much done as with all the craziness happening around them. And so what we're seeing in a way is 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 that you know there's no real innovation happening or real shifts and change happening at the federal level right now as much as there's a lot of status quo. Um, amid all the craziness uh, and shock around so many other things.
2: So it's more a kind of maintenance of business as usual.
0: For a lot of agencies and programs, I think that's the case. Um, But it's... I consider myself somewhat in exile from Washington, so I'm not as plugged in as I used to be. I'll be plugged in again someday.
2: Okay, let's dive into community engagement. And I want to start with what is an obvious and probably stupid question. But why do we need community engagement anyway? What's actually wrong with a top-down approach to policy?
0: So I think the challenge is that so often when we think of solving problems, we look at what we're doing. And, and I'm going to use an example of a city that had one of the highest infant mortality rates in the country. The top-down approach has led to lots of programs and funding and support for things in that city. It's not There's not an absence of programs, but the reality is it's still citywide has the worst They have all these great programs with outcomes being funded by academics and funders and people with expertise. But year after year, the headline is the same. It's the worst result overall. And so... What we've made the mistake is assuming that because people have credentials, they know more than the community knows. And what we find is that if we really want to move that issue in this given city, there are about 28,000 women of childbearing age. Well, and only some of them are actually uh, at high risk. And if we can focus our efforts there, but the reality is no program can get to all of those people. You can only get to them through families, friends, and neighbors. And so if you don't have a community engagement strategy, you can't solve that problem. And I think so often the place where we hit a wall in solving social problems is the recognition that it's often people helping each other and people helping themselves that are part of that effort. And when we rely only on top-down solutions, we miss all of that work that actually is what can move things to scale. If I'm trying to improve children's Uh, uh, test scores and education. There's stuff that happens in the classroom, but you have to hit the home too. So community engagement is about how do we get families and parents and others to support kids during the out-of-school time? And again, programs alone can't fill all that space. It's communities that fill that space. So I think we have to move from community engagement as something nice to understanding as something necessary and to recognize that it's not about uh, just giving us advice and counsel on how to do programs. It's actually Uh, being part of the producers of the outcomes and solutions. So we see the woman who checks in on the young mothers in the neighborhood as part of our public health system. So we see the man who watches the kids on the playground after school every day as part of our youth development system. And we understand that people aren't just there to advise us that they're actually already producing outcomes in their communities every day that we don't count because they're not in institutions.
1: Community engagement, as a term, gets thrown around a lot as a bit of a a buzzword. Um, You know, many politicians pay lip service to it by claiming that they've uh, involved the community um, when, in fact, it may just have been a a single public hearing where they've told the community about a decision that's perhaps already been made. Um, So what do you really mean when you use the term community engagement? What does it it look like?
0: Well, so I... uh, I'm always a big believer that form follows function at some level, so I think the question always to me is, what are you trying to solve, and what should the role citizens be in solving that? And there are a lot of cases where we undercount the role that people can play. To me, community engagement is about, first, when I talk about community engagement, I'm talking about community as intended beneficiaries and their families, friends, and neighbors. I'm not talking about the engagement of local organizations. I'm talking about people. And so and I'm thinking of those who we intend to benefit and the people around them. And so I think that we have to think of, 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 of those people, again, as producers of work and not just objects of others' work. We use a, a metaphor a lot in the Asset-Based Community Development Institute of, of the proverbial glass and the age-old question, is it half empty or half full? And after rigorous research and analysis and control groups and, you know, random uh, trials and everything else, we've determined the correct answer is yes. It's both. (laughs) That if we imagine ourselves and everyone we work with and serve like that class, every single one of us have gifts and talents that make us great family members, friends, workers, leaders that bring us to the work we do. But every single one of us also has emptiness. We have things we don't do well, mistakes we made, regrets we hold. Yet community service is often about people who have been defined by their fullness going into communities who have been defined by their emptiness to help people who have been labeled by their emptiness with the notion that our job is to fill them up with some of our fullness. And that at best is arrogant and at worst oppressive. And I think if leaders can always be able to see, even when they're seeing an individual or community's emptiness, to find that fullness, to find those women who are helping each other, to find those men who are helping the community, to find those elders who hold the community history, whatever it is, but to find those assets and build on that. That's where you start. People I say, how can you find people? I'm like, go find out when the mass ends every week at the church in that town and stand in the parking lot and look for the gossips. There's where you start. Or after a school meeting, like there are people who are naturally leading and carrying information and connectors, you can find those people and see those assets. But if you're only thinking of seeing communities based on their needs and problems, you'll miss all of these wonderful people and things that they're doing.
1: In a, an article that you co-authored, I think, in 2016, you used the example of the Newark public schools in America as a lesson in how not to undertake a a social change project. Um, Could you explain that example for the benefit of our listeners?
0: Yes, there's a wonderful book called The Prize about it, but, uh, and I'm forgetting the author, but the, um, basically, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, met uh, Cory Booker, who was then the mayor of, of, of Newark, and Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, And he was wanting to do something in education, and Newark is one of the most distressed and disadvantaged cities in America. And he was so inspired by their leadership that he agreed to give, I think it was $100 or $120 million to help support the school system there. And they announced it on the Oprah Winfrey Show with Mark Zuckerberg and Chris Christie and and Mayor Booker sitting there on the Oprah Show announcing that Zuckerberg was going to give $120 million to the Newark schools. That was the first time the community heard about this. Then they needed matching dollars, so they got all these rich financiers in New York to give another $100 million and created a board made up almost all of people from California and New York to oversee the money coming in to fix the Newark schools, which with they hired consultants at $400 an hour to help them develop plans and strategies around how to do it and spent the first several million on that. And what happened was the community said no way. And actually, it's a longer story, but they blew up the process, and it's tragic because that those resources could have done a lot of good. But it was an example of they did nothing to listen and engage and understand and work with the community to fix the problem. It was an imposition of solutions from outside the community. And the next grant, the next time the Zuckerbergs did that, was in Palo Alto, California, or East Palo Alto, a very poor community, and they another hundred million dollars to education. But this time, they spend a couple of years listening to teachers, listening to families, listening. They learn their lessons. But again, it's that example of if you're trying to change a system, systems are people. It requires the people in those systems to change. And if you're not engaging people who are going to have to be part of the change to be part of the change then you end up doing something to people that they're going to inevitably resist.
2: Can I ask there, I mean, why was it that the community rebelled against it? I mean, obviously, there is a kind of a top-down approach, which, as we've heard, is obviously not ideal. But in that particular instance, what what happened in the community to push back against that?
0: So, I mean, there were a lot of protests. There were a lot, I mean, it was, they, were, they were throwing people out of office in elections. There were a number of things that happened uh, that led to that. But a lot of it was... Um, that the decisions about school closings, about curriculums, about busing, about where people go, all these things were being made by people who had no connection to the community and no accountability to the community. They were accountable to a board of funders that sat outside, not to the community. And they were making decisions that had vast consequences in people's lives, that people had no participation in. And so that's really what drove that into the problems it had and, and it was it's a very sad case because of the need and the way that could have worked. And I don't know that all of the decisions were the wrong ones, but it's that the fact that they were imposed from outside rather than emerged from process in the community. Is what led that to their to them not working.
1: On the flip side, what's one of the best examples of community engagement that you've come across?
0: Well, I think the coolest example is the Family Independence Initiative, uh, uh, which was created by a man, Mauricio Lim Miller, and he wrote a wonderful book about it called The Alternative, and the subtitles Everything You Know About Poverty Is Wrong. And Mauricio, in nineteen, I think ninety eight, was honored by President Clinton for having one of the best. Nonprofit anti-poverty programs in the country. He was, every year the president makes a State of the Union address and he was the president's guest and sat in the, the First Lady's box at the State of the Union and is being honored for his lifetime of work fighting poverty and he said he had a knot in his stomach. And the knot was caused by the fact that he knew his community was as poor today as it was 20 years ago and that they were starting to see the children of people they'd helped 20 years ago come for the same services. And he said there were two things that stuck out in his mind. One was a visit he went on with a social worker from his agency where they visited a home. And, of course, home visits are meant to improve access and make it easier for people to get service. But what he noticed is when they were helping this mother, the questions they were asking the ways they were helping were diminishing her in the eyes of her teenage son. And Maurice was watching the son get increasingly embarrassed by his mother's need for help and what she was being helped on. And he realized that something they did with intention of helping was actually harming the relationship between child and parent. The other is that he remembered that when he came, his mother was a, uh, had a seventh grade education. She was a Mexican immigrant. His sister was a teen parent. When they came up from Mexico and immigrated, that his mother had too much dignity to ask for help. And it was her community that supported her. And there were all these ways the community helped each other that led to him being able to eventually go to university, found his organization, and be successful. So he went to his mayor, Jerry Brown, who's now the governor of California, and proposed creating the unorganization. And he won a MacArthur Genius Award for this. I'm going to tell you his genius idea. He created a nonprofit that had as a rule, anyone on staff who's been found to help anyone will be fired immediately. And I believe two or three people have been fired when it was discovered they'd helped somebody. And the genius idea was that he decided that poor people might be experts in getting out of poverty. So every family in the communities that had the program, every family was given a laptop and paid, I believe, $50 a month to input data on their lives, their bank statements, their mortgage statements, their kids' report cards. And then they worked with each other in, as neighbors and friends to come up with strategies that would help them get out of poverty. And FI would give them resources to do those things. And the result is in a 10-year period, the data shot through the roof. And the staff's job was to facilitate residents helping each other and to validate the data to get the paper background and make sure the data they're entering was accurate. But over 10 years, the data shot through. I think African-American income went up 40%. Home went up. Crime went down. All the indicators shifted did this in two other communities, the same results. And so I think that his example's a big challenge to the entire social service process. But a very bright example of what happens when we actually truly empower people and believe in people and equip them with the skills and resources to create change.
2: So it sounds like a fascinating project. And you said it was taken up in a couple of other places yes, as well. Yes, now a lot
0: of cities are doing it, yes, are trying to experiment with it, yes. So,
2: I mean, I, I mean, this obviously hasn't hit Australia yet. Do you think this is a kind of wave of an idea that might take up in, in other countries? Or is it yeah, something th- that's specific so. to the U.S. context? No, I
0: think I, think I, th- I know that he's had uh, other groups from around the world uh, coming to him. He was also on the White House Council. And I think that Maurice, his thoughts are provocative and challenging to the way many of us look at social service. And he's not anti-government. He's not anti, and he doesn't want his work being used to be anti-government. He thinks that poor people should get more money from the government. Uh, But he thinks that we give tax, he said, we give money to poor people, but we ask for all these conditions. But then we give rich people tax breaks and we ask them for nothing. And that, you know, if we're going to, drug test people for their public benefits who are poor, he thinks we should drug test rich people for their tax breaks.
2: When I think of community engagement, one of the things that comes to mind is the old proverb about the squeaky wheel gets the oil. Mm -hmm. In other words, it can be very easy to simply pay attention to the loudest voices in a policy conversation, Mm -hmm. even though these are the people likely to have the sort of strong vested interests. How can policymakers get around that type of problem?
0: So I think the question is always thinking about... I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash spoken today.
0: How do you be inclusive and accountable at the same time? And a piece of this that I think is very important is no one can be the voice of a community people can only be a voice from a community and sometimes we tokenize people and we almost set people up to be the voice and people often want to know in the media like who's the voice who's the speak who's the spokesperson for this community and the reality is people are a voice never the voice and so what happens is sometimes people are self-appointed as spokespeople for a community or are kind of sought because they're squeaky wheels as voices from the community and I think it's always someone's thought to think, who is that person or those people? And are there other pockets of the community that we might not be hearing that we need to hear as well? And I think, again, correcting for that. And the point about uh, accountability is that I, I define leadership in my book as uh, an action everyone can do, not just a position few people can hold, as essentially an act of responsibility where people step up and own a result and are willing to do what it takes and to achieve that result, and about the practice and values that make people want to work with you to get there. And, you know, I, I write everyone leads. It doesn't mean everyone should be in charge at the same time. It means that leadership's a muscle. And like every other muscle in our body it gets stronger with exercise. And everyone has that muscle and can be developed among all kinds of people. And the goal is always building collective leadership muscle. And so if we recognize, again, that leadership's an act of responsibility, we have to call out when leaders are being irresponsible, even if they're grassroots leaders, because you can't call for change if you're not willing to be accountable for it. And so we're or, or responsible in those ways. And so I think we always have to be careful with those squeaky wheels to make sure that to understand is that truly a dominant perspective in the community or is that a prominent perspective in community and distinguish that and never allow kind of royal wheeze to drive the day.
2: A similar issue seems to be the challenge of determining, as you said, who's actually allowed to speak on behalf of a community. If you consult with those who are the self-appointed community leaders, then you run the risk of perpetuating whatever inequality already exists in that community. For instance, if the community leaders are all old white men. So how do policymakers know who they need to listen to?
0: I think for policymakers, I think what you want to ask is, what's the the issue I'm working on in this case or I care about? And again, who are the intended beneficiaries of that work and who are the people around them? And how do I make sure that I, again, think in a diverse way about who's around them and not just limit myself to the organizations, but think of who else? So when in my city, Milwaukee, a few years ago, we had riots. The next morning, the city's violence prevention office organized a summit of leaders. And there were three young men in the front who I didn't know. And I went to the office of violence prevention director and asked him who they were. And he told me they were barbers and that they owned 14 shops in the city or something like that. And that their barbers had more relationships with young black males in the city than probably any other organization. And there's a policymaker who's thinking not just of who are the institutional leaders, but he's thinking about who has relationships with people. And I've got pastors in the room, I got who else has relationships? And I think so often as policymakers, we don't think about the problem we're trying to solve and who is in relationship with the people. Again, if we think of our intended beneficiaries and those around them, and if we start there and, and think from there, we come up with different solutions than the self-appointed leaders who kind of dominate conversations.
2: And we've talked about the challenges that politicians can face in terms of community engagement. We're doing these sort of town hall meetings and thinking they've ticked a the box in terms of Community engagement. But I'm interested to get your thoughts about uh, the people who are crafting and creating policy because it strikes me that a lot of those are used to the policy creation process being a sort of street between themselves and politicians. Do you get any kind of pushback from the people who are crafting policy in terms of this kind of more direct community engagement that you're advocating?
0: Yes, because top down is faster and easier, and people are busy, and it's hard. And sometimes people express anger, and they're frustrated, and you have to sit through and listen to that and be patient with that. And I'd rather just sit in my office and write the damn report and be done, And which is easy because I'm not affected by it. If the policy doesn't work, my life doesn't change. And so I think that it is harder, but it's more just, and it's the right thing to do, and it will get you to a better solution. One of the processes I've been big on, and Carrie uh, from, from Collaboration for Impact, who's one of my hosts, uses also, is that is this notion of doing data walks where you bring a community together, you bring leaders from organizations and residents Care, and you put a curated set of data up on the walls in graphical form, everyone can understand, and have people together in pairs walk through and look at it and talk about it. And then at tables, and ask themselves questions like, what's important and what's urgent in this data? What's missing? What am I most concerned about? What is uh, most surprising? What's missing? And they end up having these amazing conversations, but then everyone's operating from the same information. And then you start working on what are strategies to solve problems in our communities, and everyone's operating from the same base of information that they've all absorbed and expressed and talked about with each other, versus what usually happens is someone comes and does a form where they present data on slides that half the people fall asleep during, and no one understands the language, and at the end of it, tell them, here's the solution but creating these more inclusive planning processes that can really engage people that, again, can still be data-driven. You can be inclusive and data-driven. You can be inclusive and accountable. People often hold those as opposites, that if you give up power, it means giving up accountability. No you can give up power and hold people accountable. So it's not opposite. So I think it's about doing that and recognizing that if we do that, we can create better solutions.
1: How are new information technologies changing the way that we engage with communities? I'm, I'm thinking here not just about social media, but also the rise of big data, crowdsourced information. Are these new technologies enabling community engagement? Or I mean, it's, you've you've kind of touched on, will they just enable policymakers to pursue data-driven top-down approaches? Again, I think tools are tools,
0: and it's all about how you use them. People always say, well, Facebook and Twitter and things mean that people just are armed. Well, I went to a protest, got arrested, and spent 27 hours in jail because of something I saw on Facebook, because I saw people were going down to protest something in my city. So I I wasn't sitting in my armchair hitting like, actually got off my chair, went downtown, and didn't know I was going to be arrested and spent 27 hours in jail. It was a police brutality case. But it was um, a result of that. And so I think tools are agnostic. It's how you use them. So I've seen people use data tools and survey tools and all sorts of things in ways that accelerate community engagement. I've seen people use social media in ways that do that. Um, So I I don't hold a view of them as positive or negative. It's how you use them. I think the main thing is that they should always be something that they're never a substitute for true engagement, but they can accelerate and support engagement. And if we think we can create shortcuts to engagement with technology, I think that's a problem. If we can use it in ways that enhance engagement, and sometimes because... We're often trying to engage people who have children and jobs, so they're busy. And sometimes technology can help facilitate some of the work so that they only have to show up a few times because that's hard. And you can get more people engaged. So I I think, again, it's a tool that can be really helpful, but it's not a cure-all or a substitute.
1: Paul, if you could leave policymakers with one lesson about community engagement, what would it be?
0: I think the lesson is if our work in policy is about solving problems, recognize that if at our tables when we're making policy, if we don't have people who live or have lived or our family members live in the communities we're trying to target resources to, if we don't have lived experience or our family members don't have lived experience at our tables who are making these decisions, if we don't demographically reflect the communities we're working in or have people who come from other marginalized backgrounds, if we don't have that mix at our table and in our conversation, Do we really have the best expertise about the communities we're serving, the population, and the issues to make a difference? So to me, there's a difference between content expertise, which a lot of us in the professional world have, and context expertise, which is that knowledge that only comes from living and being embedded and understanding the issue personally and how it impacts people and the unintended consequences and all of that. And to me, it's always a blend of content and context expertise that creates the best solutions.
2: Paul, I think you have made a compelling case for greater community, community engagement and sort of enhanced community engagement, which is which is inclusive. Thank you very much for your time.
0: Thank you. It's uh, this is my third time that Collaboration for Impact and and the Local Community Service Association New South Wales have brought me here and. Uh, I just love visiting Australia, and there's a lot of wonderful work happening here and a lot of wonderful people. So thank you.
2: Well, you're welcome back anytime, and I'm sure our communities would welcome your engagement too. Thanks, Thanks, Paul. Mm -hmm. Paul Schmitz there, and thanks again for his time and insights. And if community engagement is something you'd like to learn more about, why not check out Crawford School's Master of Public Policy with a specialisation in policy communication. It's a degree that will teach you all about policy advocacy and public engagement in both theory and practice, and it can really sharpen your communication skills in the contemporary public policy landscape. So community engagement is no doubt relevant to your work at the Institute of Public Administration Australia, and perhaps in your previous work on housing, employment and poverty in the UK. What did you take away from that discussion?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it resonated with current debates and emerging practices here in Australia in relation to governments wanting to engage more uh, with communities. I think there's increasing realization that that's how you get better outcomes. But I was, you know, really struck by what Paul was saying about how hard it can be and how easy it is to have to have a, hot, a top-down approach to policymaking. So, yeah, you know, it resonated here, but some of his examples, I think, uh, were fantastic and really not happening yet here in Australia, nor in many other countries.
2: Where do you think Australia is down that road towards better community engagement? Obviously, it's an issue that policymakers wanted to do, but like you say, there's some kind of reticence to actually put it into practice. How far advanced down the road is Australia?
1: There seems to have been a lot of uh, developments in the in the last decade. Um, I think it's, you know, increased in terms of the extent of community engagement going on. And I think we've learned a lot of lessons about how to do community engagement better. There's a lot of work being undertaken under the, at the moment under the banner of co-design, code you know, where you really work alongside the public and communities in designing policies and practices. You know, some of that's rhetoric, but there's also some really good practice happening there as well. So, yeah, it it feels to me that there is, you know, some very positive developments happening here in Australia.
2: Is there a particular um, example of co-design that you think is working really well, that you might be able to Well, I
1: mean, right here in Canberra, the ACT government has done some really good co-design in uh, developing social services, and that process, you know, has gone right from engaging people right at the very start of a new service and taking it all the way through and continue to engage people through the implementation process. So yeah, there's some, there's some good examples around.
2: Well, I thought it was a really provocative discussion and it identified some of the challenges as well as some of the clear benefits from uh, enhanced community engagement. Well, you've heard our thoughts, but what about you, listeners? What did you think of that? Let us know. We are really keen to hear from you. You can reach us at Apps Policy Forum, Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook, or just drop us a line on email, podcast at policyforum.net. And additionally, if you've got any suggestions for what we should cover in future episodes of our podcast, please let us know. We've got the capacity to bring in world-leading expertise across a range of policy issues, so if you drop us a line, you could help shape the conversation. You can also comment directly on our website policyforum.net where we've got a smorgasbord of policy delights, by which I mean short opinion pieces on policy issues across the region. And I'd like to highlight a few comments over the last week which have come in across our various platforms. So for those of you who haven't heard, our sister podcast is called The Brief and it's a short snapshot of today's policy landscape and on Monday's episode, Edwina Landale uh, looked at the issue of homelessness. The episode was called Too Close to Home and she did an interview with the demography scholar James O'Donnell and it was talking about why a country as affluent as Australia still struggles so much with homelessness. And on Twitter, James, a different James, wrote, We need more demographers tackling difficult population issues such as homelessness. Great job. Sue, so you've worked on homelessness research in the United Kingdom. What's the most innovative policy you've seen to tackle the issue?
1: Yes, yeah, so I worked on uh, housing policy when I worked for Shelter, which is a big UK housing and homelessness charity in the UK. I think some of the, the great innovations are really where we target uh, particular transitions in people's lives. So there was a an excellent innovation when I was at Shelter, which was targeted at people who were leaving care, you know, and really invested in that point. It's a, it's a very high risk point for becoming homelessness. And if you can, you know, really support people through that transition, then, you know, it can be a much more positive outcome for them. But there's there's other examples where, you know, we invest in transitions such as people leaving the armed forces, again, which is a very high risk time for uh, becoming homeless, So, yeah, there's some good and innovative policies out there.
2: Listen, if you haven't listened to that podcast, I would thoroughly recommend you do. It comes out every Monday. It's called The Brief. Uh, It's put together by Edwina Landale. So uh, give it a listen, hit subscribe, and it will be uh, in your ears every Monday. Um, last week on our regular podcast, we spoke to Professor Mark Reid, and Mark is an expert on helping researchers maximise their influence on policy. And on Twitter, Chandni wrote that she is, in her words, recommending a cool podcast on research impact by Mark Reid and Policy Forum. Thanks for that comment, Chandni. I always appreciate being told we're cool. When was the last time you were told you were cool, So. <laughs>
1: I'm told I'm cool all the time, Martin, particularly (laughs) by my children.
2: (laughs) Well, we've had a few responses uh, to an article that we put up on Policy Forum recently by Marianne Dickey from the ANU College of Law. And it was titled, An Extraordinary Use of Power. And the article looked at the Peter Dutton au pair controversy, which is playing out in Australia at the moment, and particularly around concerns about politicians misusing their ministerial discretion. And Melanie wrote, this is a very informative piece about the immigration minister's discretion and its associated guidelines. Uh, Senate committee found, quote, the current structure of the system invites the perception of corruption and opens the way for unscrupulous behaviour at all levels. So what do you make of the au pair affair?
1: Well, it's it's not good, is it? Um, I think it does add to the whole negative uh, environment around politics in Australia at the moment. You know, even if Dutton... Uh, adhered and was within the guidelines for his, uh, ministerial discretion. The optics look very bad. And I think there's a lot of people out there in the community, uh, who clearly feel that, you know, there's one rule for them and another rule for, for other people. I think, you know, the sooner we can move on beyond it would be for the better
2: and coming so soon after the leadership spill which seems to come around every sort of year or two now in australia where i think the you know, the public reaction to that was one of disappointment uh, it's it's not great is it it doesn't it doesn't say that australian politics is in a terribly good place at the moment
1: no it it, it does put australian politics in a very bad light and of course, there's, you know, there's no coincidence, I think, that this has come out at the time of the controversy around the leadership spill as well. Um, but yes, let's, let's move on.
2: <laughs> let's, let's move on. So for our international leaders to let them know that the prime minister is now Scott Morrison. Well, this week at least, by the time we come back to you again, who knows? I want to draw your attention to an interesting comment that we had on Twitter. Elizabeth wrote... Have you done a paper on the case for psychologically screening people who wish to stand to be elected? Since they are applying for a job, why don't they go through the usual due diligence processes? The military, intelligence and law enforcement communities have stringent testing, so politicians should too. What do you think of that idea, Sue? Should elected politicians need to undergo psychological screening before they stand for office?
1: I mean, I think we have enough prob- problem encouraging people into politics already. So putting another potential barrier in place you know, might not be a great idea. You know, You'd like to hope that our politicians would all pass a psychological screening so we wouldn't worry about it. But I think that I can certainly think of some individuals that might not do very well in a psychological test.
2: You'd like to think they might pass. I, th- I think I would suspect that actually the talent pool left afterwards might be somewhat diminished. Indeed. Uh, so, on another issue, we had a comment from Patricia in response to an earlier podcast with Quentin Grafton and Sarah Wheeler. And that pod was titled The Paradox of Irrigation Efficiency. It was all about how our policies intended to increase efficiency and therefore save water could in fact be doing the exact opposite. Very interesting issue. And Patricia commented the law of unintended consequences. But have to say, I've always wondered about this. Is there a similar issue in some cases with household water efficiency? It's a good question, I think, Patricia, and there's probably a lot of areas of public policy where there are unexpected and unintended consequences. So thank you to everyone who has commented or sent us emails or uh, tweeted us about this. We really appreciate the feedback, so please do keep them coming in. And if you enjoyed this podcast, and if you're still listening, I presume that you have, perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes about 30 seconds. All you need to do is find that fifth star. That's what you're looking for. It'll be a big help to us in getting the word out about this pod and helping us have a bit of an impact of our own. Uh, So we'll be back next week with uh, two podcasts. On Monday, The Brief, will be back, and we'll be looking at the issue of oppressed minorities in China, particularly the Uyghur. Uh, And then on Friday, we'll be back with our regular podcast, which is a mystery podcast because we haven't planned it or recorded it yet. So who knows? Perhaps you've got an idea you might want to let us know. But until then, from me, Martin Pears, cheerio.
1: And from me, Sue Regan, bye for now.
0: comes to clothes, having pieces that you can wear anywhere is a must. That's why American Giant makes clothing that fits your life seamlessly, with quality you have to feel to believe. Whether you're stocking up for any weather or picking up a special gift, you'll find an impressive selection of staples to choose from. So whether you're on the hunt for a heavyweight hoodie, a fleece jacket, or a hardworking pair of warm sweatpants, American Giant has what you're looking for. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com, promo code AnyStyle24.